Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today is Uday Akaraju, the CEO of Bond AI, good friend of ours. I have no idea why it took us so long to invite you, but thank you for joining us on the show today, Uday. Oh, absolutely. I don't know why. I mean, how many episodes you guys have done before? So, yeah, Oops. <laughs> that, that's not count. Don't count. <laughs> yeah, we're starting off the episode guilt tripped. Sorry. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Bond and some of the things that you and your team can do for financial services partners. Do you, do you work with both banks and fintechs and credit unions and the like? Yeah, but yeah, when we're talking about episodes, let me just step back a bit. But uh, one of the last episodes you guys did, uh, I think it was uh, She Has a Name. <laughs> so, I mean, that was a really, really good episode. So I'll tell you an incident. I was hearing Arun speaking about uh, his guild of uh, his uh, family. I mean, not, his wife not starting work. So we had the same situation with my wife. I mean, we had a baby recently. She didn't start work. But the next day after listening to that episode, she actually started going back to work. So that was, I mean, uh, I think from the last podcast, we got like inspired and stopped our procrastination and just got it going. <laughs> so thank you. Yay. So maybe our words do matter somehow sometimes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, people just, yeah. I think it, it's just there and people just have to have a trigger. So they have to have that nudge. Right. So that was it. So, so continuing to our company. So that is exactly what we do for financial services and consumers. So everybody knows what they really need to do, but I think you have to constantly give them a nudge to what exactly they have to do and uh, do that in the right direction, move them in the right direction. So we call ourselves a human centered AI platform for banks. So the reason we call a human centered is the whole focus of our platform is how do we understand consumer behavior? And how can we nudge them in the right direction? So how do we nudge them is we have a front end as a conversational bot, both voice and text. So contextually, we keep nudging the users based on their data in the right direction. So when you, when you think about, you know, that, that data um, and the type of data you collect and the type of data you use in, in inferring these type of insights. Um, you know, let's talk about the responsibility of a company like yours and a company, uh, you know, a industry like banking. What, what are the ethics around data to you? I mean, talk about the data that you collect and talk about, you know, sort of the value that you're exchanging for that data. Yeah, I think the thing is what we do as the first step is once we integrate with a bank or a financial institution, we get all the data we can get from that, that bank. And what the first step, what we do is, so we have an, something called an empathy engine. So what well, that is a real engine, that's, that's the real AI behind our, our platform. So what it does, it, it takes the data, it creates personas for every consumer or small business of that particular institution. So that persona actually gives us a great idea, gives the platform a great idea of what the consumer has been doing, what we need to do to make their life better, right? So. We are kind of making some decisions based on the data we have. But the thing is, uh, the data we have is very limited because we just have financial data. So financial data is not a reflection of their whole life. And the AI is trying to give them a, a decision or an insight to do something better in their life. So, so we think that's not full data. So what we do is, apart from the data, data we have, while having conversations with the consumer using the bot, we also collect non-financial data contextually. I mean, we collect non-financial data points like their interests, what is their potential, what is their aspiration and all that stuff. 
So that kind of non-financial data set is we really, really focus on so that when we can blend that data with financial data, we get a much, much more uh, better understanding of the user. So to your point, right, I mean ethics, because you cannot deny that all our future will increasingly depend on algorithms making the right decision for us and deeply augmenting our decision making, right, from self-driving cars to financial advisors to justice systems deciding who is convicted and who gets a bail. So it's very, very important to determine uh, what constitutes a fair and a good decision. So as an AI person myself, as, as a founder of an AI company, ethics is, I mean, AI ethics is fundamental and the most important thing to focus on because you're already seeing so many examples of bias in these algorithms in, in decision making, even from the big companies. So, so it's very important. So our, our focus right from day one has been on empathy and ethics. Let's talk about that a little bit more. I mean, you mentioned the empathy engine, but so so I, I understand, you know, uh, as as Theo and I have advised your company for a while, and so we we know each other pretty well. Uh, but one of the things I think that that is good to talk about for our listeners is what does that empathy engine drive in terms of the data that you collect and the type of solutions that you sort of offer to these customers? Because one of the things that you've recently started working on is sort of this streamlined onboarding. And what I what I love about what you guys have created for um, some of your clients is this idea of very quickly coming in to a financial relationship for a bank or credit union or fintech and assess ways that you can immediately help the customer. And, you know, you're doing this in such limited amount of information that you have to collect, you onboard someone very, very quickly, and then you are able to tap into data and assess ways to help them. So, so let's talk about that empathy engine and what it really drives. Yeah, sure. I mean, as the name suggests, right, it's really, really about empathy. And people might ask, I mean, can AI be empathetic? Of course. I mean, the thing is, what, what's the fundamental decision, uh, definition, right? So it is just have, putting yourself in uh, a user's shoe and kind of understanding them, thinking like them, feeling like them, and kind of coming to a, a decision point. So because we have the data, right, we have the data of the user, non-financial and financial together, we are actually trying to empathize with the consumer as much as we can. So, I mean, if you see that is the real, real problem right now, not just in financial services, there is an empathy gap everywhere. So here, and in we trying to, starting from financial services, we want to inculcate that with all of our consumers. So, so the thing is, our core product is a bot, which will give insights to actually help the consumers move in the right direction in their financial life. But the thing is, it that particular bot piece falls in the middle of a user journey. So a consumer goes to an institution, they kind of uh, open an account, they do all that stuff, and then they use uh, their mobile app, and then that's that's what the, uh, they actually use our bot. But the thing is, I mean, for banks, they have to understand the consumer right from onboarding. So that's the reason why when you're talking about onboarding, we've created a solution, an extension to our existing bot. We've created an onboarding solution, which is the fastest in the industry today. I mean, if you see, if you see all the data, I mean, you see there are uh, accounts which open with big banks in 99 clicks, or it takes two days. But for us, it takes about 10 clicks and less than a minute. So still, we do that, still doing all our AYC, KYC and AML checks. But the most important thing we do, even while you're onboarding, we actually personalize the experience for the consumer. And as soon as they're onboarded, 
we are ready with that particular person I was talking about so that the bank can add value to the customer from day one onwards. What I like about what you guys have done is I always compare it to like a firm or someone else where you could come in and like, you know, with a zip code and a phone number and your name, almost like get access to, to credit. Yeah. But what you're doing is actually building value beyond something, just credit, which is, to me, what's problematic with financial services is that you're immediately extracting value from that customer. You're you're driving for profit in that initial relationship. You look at it very opposite of that and say, look, how can I help on, on multiple places to improve your financial health? And I think that's really the key here. So uh, kudos to that. So along with that line, Ray, when we're thinking about um, credit and algorithms and, and all of that, there have been quite a few recent cases in technology where bias has crept in, um, mostly around how algorithms work, right? So recently we had the examples from Twitter, we had the examples from Zoom. Um, and one would say when it comes to making a fair and equitable decision, AI has accelerated our bias. But one would also argue it's not so much so AI, but more precisely is the data that we had, right? Yeah. And so while it might be possible to, is impossible to completely eliminate bias because um, it's historical data, humans are biased to begin with. How yeah. do we best reduce it though, to make it better? See, the thing is uh, companies, I mean, fundamentally try to create unbiased models observing our human values, right? So they constantly, observe what humans do and they try to create those uh, models right but that's exactly where i see a deficiency because all these uh, machine learning models are being built by undoubtedly brilliant computer scientists and cognitive scientists etc but the problem is i think the lack of diversity not just in terms of data but also the lack of diversity in the people who are actually doing it because if you have lack of diversity, you're fairly modeling a limited version of the human. I mean, that's what you're saying, that your examples of Zoom and Twitter, that's exactly what happened. So not just uh, limited versions of the data, but also limited versions of the people doing it. So you have to have diversity on both sides. You have to have the enough sample size on both sides. So, but everybody might say, um, okay, you have to have enough sample size, but what is the real sample size? I mean, what is the ideal sample size? So the thing is, I always say, and this might again sound controversial or maybe sound for somebody, but you have to crowdsource AI ethics. You have to do it. So unless and until you do that, you don't have enough data points. You don't have enough sample size so that anything you do, even with like 20 people or 30 people might not be enough and you're doing it to millions of people. So that's the way to go, I think. You cannot reduce it to zero, but you can definitely reduce it as much as possible if you can crowdsource AI ethics. So, so let's let's take that on a little bit more and pull that thread. Um, kind of what I was talking about earlier in terms of you know the the purpose of collecting financial data yeah. and the type of things that we're looking at when we onboard a customer. Yeah. If 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 what we're looking for is immediate sort of profitability or immediate credit relationship, it's almost like we're creating in that model bias itself because. You know, as as a, a lender, you know, that that's what you do. You lend. As a financial service provider, that's more than just lending though. Yeah. Why why are we looking at, you know, sort of these data sets just to build better credit models so that we limit our loss and we maximize the profit from a customer? Why can't we 
you know, look at the bias of a business model and apply it to the way that we leverage data so that we have win-wins. I mean, I, I, I talked yesterday with Paul Loberman for two hours about win-wins in business models and this idea that data is being collected just for one purpose yeah. sort of goes beyond, you know, I think the bias that we normally talk about. So, so what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, the way that we collect and use data and financial services, how can we expand that to be a win-win? Exactly. See, the thing is, that's what I, I gave you an example of that onboarding. So yes, say for example, we actually go to some finance institutions. They say, Hey, we have this problem of, we have a lot of deposits, but we don't, don't have loans. Some banks might be, might be just the opposite. We have a lot of loans, but we need more deposits. So the fundamental goal of that particular institution is actually kind of narrow and everything is focused on that. The marketing efforts, everything is focused on that. But when we say exactly about this empathy engine, where we're onboarding customers, we're trying to break that. So when we do that, when we create the persona, right, when you onboard a consumer, we are showcasing the bank what that consumer or a small business really, really needs. So we are exactly that. What we're trying to do is we're trying to open that up. We're trying to eliminate bias in the whole, the, the fundamental goal of the institution so that, because the thing is banks have a lot of products. And I mean, it's when you just go map a pie chart, everything is not proportionately distributed according to what the user wants, or even even inside the bank, it's not proportionally distributed. Everyone had, has, has a different focus, but they have a wide variety of consumers. We've seen that in the data. So we are trying to break that bias of the bank's goal itself from day one, when we onboard the customer, just want to open, our, open it up so that they can see what the consumer really wants. And again, when you have diversity in that aspect too, if the bank will also be profitable and happy. I, I would love to see that um, where where we have slightly different focus on, on what we're doing um, and where we need to go. Speaking of um, something that you and I wrote about last year now, I think, on Harvard Business Review yeah. about AI and data um, and polarization of our societies, right? And and I think we, we can definitely see that um, just think through our everyday life when we go to Amazon, right, yeah. or other e-commerce sites. When you're looking for something, um, what we ended up buying, is it really what we want to buy versus what the engine suggested? Oh, maybe you're interested in this, right? Or recently there was an article about Google, um, about the information that they surface on there when you do a search. Yeah. Much of that is self-serving. It yeah. keeps the traffic to their sites, um, rather than, you know, really doing it based on what they think you would be interested to see or it drives the sponsored, right? At the end of the day, it always comes back to the business model that you have. Um, right. If you're not paying money for it, then sorry, they're going to have to get it from somewhere. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the side effect of that is we are becoming more and more polarized as a result. Um, we have our own little echo chamber and it keeps feeding it because it wants to feed you information that you're interested in so they can get more clicks, they get more engagement and they make more money. How do we get out of this rabbit hole? There are two things I'll tell you seriously. At the polarization, it, it's partially might be because of, like we say, it's because of limited data. When you try to give a recommendation based on limited data, of course you'll go into a hole. Of course you'll go into a bubble. So the thing is, that's what is happening on Amazon and all other sites. So there is so many jokes around, right? I mean, you actually ask for something and you don't get, you get something which you, you do not even need, but you still buy it. But again, that's exactly the problem here. Limited data, giving recommendations with limited data will create this problem. 
So you need to expand your data horizon for sure. That's what we are trying to do, being more holistic. And the second part is, come on, let's give uh, data access back to the user or data control back to the user. So if these big companies are trying to control data, of course it's going to be biased all the time. So yes, you have great regulations like the GDPR and the CCPA where, yes, it's, it's a great step in the right direction, but still the control of data is not with the user because we know what we want and we have to be given that option. If you want to share data with a particular service, let us share it. So give that option to turn on and turn off the data to the consumer. Companies can do that today, tech companies can do that today, but it just has to happen. So I have a follow-up for you today. Um, recently, Amazon said, we would be willing to give you money for your data. Exactly. What do you think about that? That's exactly what needs to happen. So, so the thing is, companies are using our, like you guys said in a, in a podcast, you are the product, but the consumer is the product, right? And consumer is a product and nobody's paying for that product. I mean, we pay the, com the companies a lot of products, right? And a lot of money for their product. And basically the whole business model of those big companies are based on us as a product. And nobody is paying us for that. And the thing is, it's okay if they don't pay us, but the thing is it's giving us limited recommendations. It's, it's pushing us in the wrong direction slowly, but steadily. That's exactly what is not supposed to happen. So if I'm the product, Maybe let's let these companies start a, a freemium model where saying, okay, you get these insights for free, but later on, if you want to get, we'll actually pay you for that. So it has to be just the opposite. I think that's interesting though, because you know Amazon here is likely not going to pay you anything near what that data is worth. Um, it's kind of, it reminds me of this idea of sort of the aggregation engine and financial services being applied to, you know, the aggregation Hoover, the vacuum of data, like throughout our lives. And uh, what we don't realize is that companies are sort of sucking up this data and aggregating it and then repackaging it and then selling it to hedge funds and other places to really leverage that on the aggregate. But what Amazon's talking about here is, you know, sort of aggregating it, but on the personal, um, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit about that some more. It's like so, you know, we we don't often have the chance to to talk with someone that I think both uh, Theo and I are very familiar with in terms of you know our our relationship with with you being long term here, and it, it, what what I think is lost sometimes for our listeners is the whys and and the whos and the whats um, about you know why you got into this, why you founded Bond. And, and your, your background is especially interesting um, compared to a lot of founders that we work with. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of what your background is and, and maybe your first startup a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, so I have a background in human-centered design. So that, that's my backbone, really. I mean, I have everything related to human-centered design. And uh, then I did my uh, research into cognitive science and behavioral science. So everything, that, that was my core focus. Uh, but I was a musician. <laughs> before i mean i mean st i'm still a musician though but i don't play much <laughs> so so my previous company uh, was into helping musicians uh, get out of their creative block so that was a big project i mean i thought that can change the world but it did not <laughs> so the thing is uh, we developed uh, something a, a headphone uh, which because musicians are always with a headphone and we embedded that headphone with eeg sensors like the ecg we have eeg sensors which can actually record the brain activity so we used to record the patterns of the brain and correlate with uh, what they're thinking, with what they're actually doing with their software while making music. So we had that correlation algorithm. So when a, 
a musician was hitting a creative block, we actually used those patterns to kind of give him, give him or her a musical inspiration so that they can come out of the creative block. We thought, wow, that's a great idea. I mean, that's a world-changing idea. But quickly I realized I'm a musician, I cannot pay. I mean, most of the musicians cannot pay for expensive software, right? <laughs> so that was a human-centered design realization. But it was, it was a great project, but that actually kind of uh, got me started on thinking about behaviors, thinking of understanding people holistically. And that's when it actually hit a point. I was in San Francisco, I mean, I was living in Palo Alto that time, having a good paycheck. Uh, but I had a financial emergency, <laughs> so I'm laughing about it right now, but it was terrible. So I went into a deep hole. I myself was not able to understand what I was able to do. Went to my financial advisor, went to my bank. Nobody was helping me. So I had to figure a way out for myself using my own uh, background. So I created a tool. 18 months down the line, everything came out, came out of it successfully. I was able to even invest in this company I started, which is Bond.ai. And imagine if we can have more financial institutions, more fintechs um, actually leverage that type of creativity to leverage someone's data to inspire a change. Yeah. And, and that, I think, is, you know, really the crux of what you're trying to do with the empathy engine. So Absolutely. it's just about giving giving people inspiration. They will do it. Just give them hope. Just give them inspiration in the right direction. So is there a reason for hope today? See, the thing is absolutely right. I mean, uh, I think data is a great hope to create an equal society for sure. There's no doubt. Because the thing is, before we were talking about there's a lot of information, there's a lot of noise. We're talking about information overload all the time. But right now it's misinformation overload, you know, right? <laughs> so so our, all our cognitive abilities and all our thinking are getting influenced in the wrong direction. Sometimes, I mean, I'm, I'm not telling right in the end every time, but sometimes for sure. That's why I'm saying it's creating an empathy gap. It's kind of influencing you in the right direction with lim limited recommendations and all that stuff. But if data can be used to help our decision making, it can become an augmented moral compass for us to help us take fair and decisions for us and for our communities. Really, I mean, that, that's the thing. Fundamentally, you have to focus on that ethics and how your AI algorithm is taking a decision, not just on limited data, but understand the holistic context. I like what you've been saying so far. I think one other aspect I'll add is is to the point of education, right? Um, I think it's really important on two fronts. One is provide different pathways for people to get an education in tech and data. Yeah. Um, you're a great example to show people that you can actually move your career around, right? And, and create something interesting and meaningful. We need more of those. So the way that we had always been doing our education, um, the very traditional four-year degree, yeah. it doesn't work for everybody, right? And so we need to create different pathways for people yeah. to succeed, um, whichever point that they begin their career. Yeah. Um, and I think the other part of education is that we need to get kids, even when they're young, to understand the context of what has not been working in this country. Um, and, and to tell the truth, right? Because to be able for us to move forward, we need to recognize the wrongs of the past. We need to recognize what has brought us to where we are right now. Um, that's why I've been reading um, the book Color of Law and it has been taking me forever to finish it. But it's, it's a really good read. It provides context on the housing policy that we had in the past. 
And that was how, and that with financial institutions happily complying with not offering mortgages um, to certain demographics um, and you, and hiding behind the law and saying, well, you know, this is what we're doing. And that has created generations of inequality, economic inequality. And that's where we are today. It's, it's a big problem yeah. that needs to be resolved. Um, and, and if we can actually understand and, and be honest about what has happened, yeah. I think it would help us uh, move forward. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's why I, mean, I say to my uh, data scientists and AI engineers, you should often introduce bias so that uh, you can eliminate bias. Yeah. So that's yeah. to your point, exactly. Yep, yep. Let's, let's sort of end on, on this note. I want to talk about the where you are. Um, because I think that's also interesting and that kind of ties into what you just talked about when the color of law, when we, when we think about bias, we, we think about locational bias as well. And you lived in Silicon Valley and you worked here and now you're, you're kind of not in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And, and we write a lot about, um, different parts of the country becoming their own ecosystems and their own sort of support networks for founders and entrepreneurs. Right. And, and you're in a very different place. Tell us about why you're there and tell us maybe some um, thoughts about what founders should think about when they're creating their company. See, I mean, and frankly, uh, when I was in, in the Valley, I mean, it was a great place. I mean, it, it's, it's a dream, right? For everybody to be in the Valley, start your companies, be successful. But I mean, I did not realize it uh, when I was there. So I'll tell you, so right now I'm in Little Rock, Arkansas. I never heard about the place even before I came here. So I came here, I landed in the airport, then I realized, okay, this is Little Rock, Arkansas. But the thing is, it's, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's the same for everybody. There's people just don't know about a lot of places in the U.S. except for the coast. So the thing is, after I came here, the realization I had was, there, I was definitely in a bubble when I was living there. So you have to break it. I mean, you have to break it for sure, because fundamentally for an entrepreneur, your life is stressed, no matter what. Your work-life balance is not in the right balance. So the first and foremost thing is for an entrepreneur, really, your quality of life is very, very important. And you have to get as much time for yourself as possible. So that's the thing I really, really realized after I came to Little Rock because that's, those are the two things I really got. Because the more time you give for yourself, the more time you can actually create value for others. So as an entrepreneur, so make sure you get more because I was traveling two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening, spending like eight hours at the office came back just sleep I and mean, really I was I was not really really I was not productive so uh, you need to have a very good quality of life you need to have the right investment ecosystem people think the, the investment ecosystem is there only on the coast but no if you create a product of value we can actually raise money anywhere in the US it's not so you, you're seeing the rise of the rest you're seeing all those initiatives but a company like us in Arkansas, you don't even think it's a startup ecosystem. It's that there's actually a lot of great activity happening here. We could raise more than $1.5 million to start with. There are a lot of wonderful things happening. Like I said, I mean, uh, there's uh, something called the Venture Center here. I mean, it was actually rated uh, the best fintech accelerator in the world, and it, it is in Little Rock, Arkansas. Do you know about it? No. The thing is, it's a lot of great work is happening. A company called uh, Fidelity Information Systems was actually started here. It is the largest financial solutions provider in the world, and it is here in Little Rock, Arkansas. And there are great companies. I mean, Walmart is headquartered in Arkansas. So it's not that the activity is happening just in the coast, but especially if I want to talk about fintech, 
there is I mean, a tremendous activity happening here in Little Rock, especially from the Venture Center, FIS and the ICBAs. Everybody's collaborating, trying to make this a fintech hub. So I think as a fintech entrepreneur, uh, it's a great place to be for us, the right place at the right time. So if you have a real product, you can do that anywhere in the US, not just the coast, for example. And the third thing is really, you. I mean, it, people, people say this, but you really need to find the right talent. I mean, don't even compromise on okay, this, this person can do it in the future. No, 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 I mean, you have to get people who can do it right away for you, for sure. So that, that, that has to be the real focus for you. But, but I, I mean, just to summarize though, I mean, great quality of life is very, very important. That's what I got here, but, and, and time. So put on your own oxygen mask first. I think that's what people would say and take care of yourself. Um, a message which is especially more important nowadays when we're all stressed from everything else is going on around us that is very unprecedented. So thank you so much, Uday, for spending time with us. We should have done this much sooner, um, but I'm glad we have a chance to do this. And uh, we can't wait to see you in person one of these days. So thank you so much. And thank you for listening in to another episode of One Vision.